Take a copy of the scriptures, if you will, and open up to the book of 1 Timothy. Book of 1 Timothy, we'll read it in a moment, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. If you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, there's a copy in front of you. You're welcome to use that. Page 991 is where we'll be this morning. Well, today we begin a new series, Building a Healthy Church. For a bit of a projection, this will take us through August. I'll unpack a little bit more of what this series entails here in a few moments. This will take us through August. We'll take a little hiatus in the month of July. Pastor Abe Stratton will lead us in a summer series during that month. The series will be about 11 or 12 sermons long, I think. Let's start where the book starts, chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this. That the law was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." He gives us a list there at the end of these verses and says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In chapter 4, verse 6, he'll refer to good doctrine. And in chapter 6, verse 3, he'll speak again of sound doctrine. In the pastoral epistles, of, this is one of the letters that Paul has written. He wrote three to pastors. Uh, Two of them to Timothy and one to Titus. 32 times teach, teaching, teachers are referenced. Doctrine and its instruction, in particular here, sound, good doctrine, is in focus. Literally translated, healthy, healthy doctrine. More than doctrine or teaching, but a certain content, a certain quality of doctrine. And what for? Look with me in chapter 3. So you may have to flip over a page. Here is, we could say, Paul's aim. He's got a couple. This may be the main one, anchoring the book. I hope to come to you, verse 14, soon. So he hopes to come soon, but he's writing these things to you, Timothy, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave In the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So sound doctrine yields a strong church or healthy doctrine for a healthy church. He's writing that Timothy may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, the church, which is the pillar and the buttress of truth. That's what the church is. But meanwhile, his book is laced with exhortations to guard and to teach and to preach sound doctrine. Jesus told us he will build his church, and how will he build his church? Through the apostolic teaching, through the teaching handed down to us through the apostles, which Timothy is receiving and which Timothy hands on. Through sound words, sound doctrine. This letter opens up. There's a kind of an urgency. Timothy's given a charge. There appears to be trouble of some kind, serious enough that he can't go anywhere. Remain, Timothy, he says. Don't run, Don't go anywhere. He's not allowed to run, but neither is he allowed to bargain. He's not allowed to stay and to hide. What's he to do? Flip over back with me to chapter 1. 
Look at verse 3, Paul says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, you remain at Ephesus. Why? So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now look at verse 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So, Timothy's in a, Timothy's in a tough spot. There are people making a shipwreck of their faith. They're trying to lead others into the rocks as well. And he says, don't run. Don't you go anywhere. And you, Timothy, don't you reject the faith. He's vulnerable to following. He's vulnerable to the pressure to depart. Instead, Timothy, you put out the fire. You make, thing, you make sure things are buttoned up. You make sure the sheep are safe there at Ephesus. We'll look today just at verse 1 through 11, and we'll finish chapter 1 next week. They make a kind of a unit a charge to Timothy with a couple dimensions. But today's sermon, focusing on 1 through 11, is titled, Getting to Work on the Church. You stay at Ephesus, don't go anywhere, you've got a job to do. It's a dangerous job site, Timothy, that we are on as well. And the greatest danger to the church, our danger is not from within necessarily, not from without necessarily, but from within people on the job site with different measurements and different materials and different visions for how this thing is supposed to look and where it's supposed to go. And in this book, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, imparts not only a vision for the church, but orders for its construction, for its life, and for its leadership. And so today, we begin a series working through, if you will, the blueprints for a healthy church. This is a great place for us to settle down for a number of months. Might do a series on what is a healthy church and piece together sections of Scripture from a variety of places. It won't generally be my pattern to do that. But to go to a book like this, which answers the question, what are the urgent matters to be on the minds and in the time of the church's leadership and of the church itself? And this book will yield all kinds of beautiful rays for us from the sun of the gospel that's shining on the church and through the church. An undertow of an evangelistic heart that Paul has through it all. Doxological refrains and glory to God and sound doctrine. Instruction for how to root ourselves in the right, the right matters. So today we begin getting to work on the church three sections in this sermon, in this text. We'll get acquainted, then we'll get to work, and then we'll look at what it means to get it right. First, getting acquainted, verses 1 through 2. A standard greeting with a spiritual meaning. We never want to go too slow over these. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. At times this letter is going to be tough. He's going to call Timothy to wage the good warfare, to fight the good fight. But it begins on a specially tender note. Easy to brisk over, worth slowing down for. It's from a man named Paul. Let's start there. When you hear Paul, you might hear the Apostle Paul. You might hear uh, Paul Imes down here. You might hear Uncle Paul, like I grew up with Uncle Paul. When Uncle Paul called, Uncle Paul always promised that the next time I saw him, he'd have a quarter for me. If I did like three phone calls between seeing him, I still just got one quarter. He was always talking about the same quarter. That was Uncle Paul. Here we want to know what Paul he's talking about. Paul, one of his apostles, Jesus' apostles, the, the most recent installment, Jesus appointed 12 apostles, one defected, and there was one appointed after that for Jesus return, uh, returned to uh, uh, before he ascended. And then he appeared to Paul and appointed him an apostle. Through these men, the apostles, they worked closely with Jesus. Christ gave the New Testament Scriptures by the Spirit, 
the New Testament scriptures come to us by the apostles and those who worked closely with them. The apostles and the prophets, they're referred to in the New Testament. They gave us the scriptures. How did Paul become an apostle? Who was he to write this letter like this to Timothy with these instructions for Jesus' church? Did he earn his status? Was he born into it? Did he achieve incredible spiritual feats and loyalty to Jesus? Very much the opposite. After Jesus' crucifixion, Paul went on a rampage to stamp out Jesus' name. The thought that a man crucified would be the answer to all of our problems and the Messiah that God would send and his king was utterly ridiculous and offensive and a stumbling block and foolishness. More on that next week. But this is why Paul says that he's an apostle, verse 1, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus. This letter to Timothy and this letter for us is not a letter in the course of one man-made movement that really took off in the first century. But it is the very design of God from all eternity. And we receive this letter as by the command of Jesus himself. Sitting here under the rule of Jesus hearing his word. This letter in our hands comes to us from heaven. This is officer language by command of Jesus. It's official. And that's good. Timothy is called to fight a good warfare. He has difficulty before him. Physical difficulty maybe. Social and emotional difficulty, perhaps mostly. What he's called to do is hard. Hard. He needs the right orders from the right, for the right mission. And he needs them from Jesus. And here he has them, and so do we. From Jesus Christ to Paul, a command. From Paul to Timothy, a charge. And from Timothy to the church at Ephesus, an urgent charge. And we receive it. We have a hard job, and we have orders for that job. But with those orders comes a promise. It's a heavy letter, but it's a letter with great hope. Look at verse 1 again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Pick one word. Our hope. Jesus, who is not seen visibly, who is crucified, everyone saw that, who is buried and raised and ascended to the Father's right hand, he will return. That is as sure as his death, and that is our hope. And Timothy needs this. It needs this to pull him through the trouble that he faces. And Paul knows this. This is Paul's hope. Jesus is a commander, but he's no hapless commander. He's a hope-giving commander. He calls us to follow our follow him carrying crosses. And the way that we can willingly do that is because he suffered on his way to glory and we will suffer as well on our way to glory. One commentator opens his volume on this, comment, on this book this way. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in case of success. That advertisement appeared in a London newspaper and thousands of men responded apparently. It was signed by the noted Antarctic explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton. And that was what made the difference. And so Paul, Timothy here receives a letter as our elders receive this letter, hearing it in the position of Timothy. And as all of us, as members under the care of shepherds and elders, hear this as, if you will, the congregation at Ephesus listening in, all of us hear this as coming from Jesus himself, and whatever it may cost that comes before us, we have hope. The the writer, the ultimate commander of the letter, makes the difference. Timothy has signed on for all of this, a partner with Paul in preaching the gospel and implanting in hard soil. The job site is difficult and dangerous, but it is not a dreary job site. We may die on this job site. There will be long months of darkness, but it will not end in darkness. Remember, hell may try, but the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Because Jesus Christ is coming and he's our hope. The master builder and architect will see his work through and he will see his workers through. Paul has done more than complete part of a customary greeting in these words. For Timothy, 
he has given Timothy an entire worldview, an entire way of seeing everything. He is at Jesus' commands, Jesus, the Son of God from all eternity, who came and lived and died to take away our sins and to bring us to God, is ruling and reigning and is commanding and is leading his church, and these are orders for Timothy, and so they are for us. He said to Timothy now, I want you to know who I am. I am Paul the Apostle at the command of Jesus Christ and God our hope. Convictions for comfort and a reason for courage. And now he says, verse 2, I want you to know who you are. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Paul, God's true apostle. Now Timothy, Paul's true child. He'll say it again in verse 18. Look here with me. This charge I entrust to you. This charge I entrust to you. Timothy, my child. We know a bit about Timothy. If you can't relate with Paul's conversion experience of being met by Jesus on the road to kill Christians, raise your hand if that's you. Were you met by Jesus on the road to kill Christians in shining glorious light, resurrected Lord? No. I can't relate with his conversion experience. Maybe you'll relate with Timothy's. Timothy was raised in a Christian home, a godly mother. 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your your mother, Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. And he says he's learned the scriptures from a very early age, from childhood. He's learned the scriptures that make him wise for salvation. He's been instructed in the scriptures. He grew up, if you will, in a Christian home under the influence and care of, of a believing mom. His dad was a Greek, not a believer. Maybe this is partly why Paul emphasizes his spiritual fatherhood over Timothy, Timothy needed to hear this from Paul, his spiritual father, in a special way. Timothy was also young, and he was timid, shy. He had some insecurities. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, indicated that Timothy might need some encouragement along these lines. And he was frail. From what we can tell, he had stomach issues. He's told to take a little bit of wine for his stomach. Apparently, he had some difficulty. Sounds less apostolic and more human, at least to me. But as for his youth and frailty, he was also faithful. And for that reason, Paul recruited him for his mission. And that story we find in Acts chapter 16. Timothy felt inadequate for God's work. And so Paul reminded Timothy that he chose him. Just listen to these words. Timothy feels inadequate. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid hands on on you. Next Sunday, we'll lay hands on the elders that we're appointing in the biblical pattern, in part to give them courage to do what God has called them to do in his word. All of us saying together, you do it. You lead. You shepherd. Others felt Timothy was inadequate for God's work because of his youth. And so Paul said to him, let no one despise you for your youth. Timothy, you're young. Don't make a matter of that. You set an example for believers. He would need to hear that. But even before that, he and we need to hear three words Paul says next in his greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. There it is again in two verses, a reference to God the Father and Jesus. Grace, you and I are sinners who get what we don't deserve in Christ. The glory of heaven, the promise of eternity with him, the knowledge of God, every spiritual blessing in him, it's all ours. We didn't, we didn't achieve it. We didn't earn it. It comes to us freely through a cross and a resurrection. Mercy, not only do we get what we don't deserve, but we don't get what we deserve. We don't get hell and condemnation and what our sins deserve. And what the thoughts you had this morning and maybe even right now deserve, you'll get something else. You won't get the wrath of God. All that was laid on Christ and peace. We were alienated from God and one another, but now we know peace with God and one another through the blood of Jesus. Grace, mercy, and peace. And if you're here this morning and you don't have the grace of God and you don't know the mercy of God and the peace of God, 
you don't know God. And you can't benefit from this letter except to suffer under it and outside it. Listen with ears to hear and eyes to see what God will show you. Receive the grace, the mercy, and peace that come through Jesus Christ alone who died for us and who was raised for us. Our hope. And for the rest of us who believe this, may we not forget where all this begins and ends with the grace, the mercy, and the peace that comes to us through the gospel. And all of this flowing from one place, our triune Lord. Paul is an apostle, but our triune Lord is the source of all that this apostle is and all that this apostle writes and all that we receive by the word. Now, to the job site. He's ready to hear what he needs to do, and so are we. We've gotten acquainted with Paul and Timothy, the main characters in this letter. Now, getting to work, verses 3 through 7. I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that's by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You know, if we were to write a a manual on how to build a healthy church, we might have like all kinds of things in here besides this. Here's how to lead meetings. Um, You need to have a good children's ministry. You got to find the guy or the gal that'll head that up. Uh, Those things aren't unimportant around here. But here, you know, verse three, and Paul is taking Timothy and charging him to fight certain persons who are opening their mouth and spewing untruth. And not everyone can tell, but Timothy's to be able to have ears for it. And he's to charge them to stop it. It's a thick section, but there's a grain to it. There's a grain to this set of five or so verses. How does, it, how does the grain run? Well, let's start here. There's, there's a problem. Clearly in these verses three through seven, there's, there's a problem that's urgent enough that it's the first thing on Paul's, off Paul's pen in writing after the greeting. It's an urgent problem. I urged you. To stay. It's anticipated as well. Listen to these words from the book of Acts. Paul spent three years in Ephesus, and when he leaves, he says these things. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's talking to elders, to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified." Paul even predicted fierce wolves will they're going to sneak in to draw away the disciples that Jesus has won. And you elders, you need to have eyes to spot it. Don't go to sleep. Stay alert. Paul can't be there to deal with it. And so Timothy is the man for the job. You ever been in that position? You're an assistant or something and the boss can't make it and you're running the meeting. Uh, You're giving the talk. There's always, uh, for guys that aren't the normal preaching pastors, there's always the possibility the guy's vomiting 10 minutes before the sermon and can't preach. I don't quite, I don't have yet a plan for a uh, round in the chamber as we call it, but we'll get there. I've been in a position of always having a round in the chamber and I've had as short as 24 hour notice even to write a sermon. In this case, Paul can't be there. Shoot. Timothy's there, and it's his job. If I can't come to you, this is yours, Timothy. You're running the meeting. You're preaching. You're going to have the confrontation. What's the problem? Verse 3, it's a different doctrine. As opposed to, verse 7, what's described as sound doctrine. Sound or healthy doctrine. 
that which the church is built on, that which cannot be taken for granted, that which is the everyday, all the time labor of the church's elders, whether the membership is clawing at them to care about sound doctrine or not, we as elders know this thing rises or falls on its foundation, which is that laid by the apostles and prophets, the scriptures, sound doctrine. We'll explore this idea more in chapter 4, but it's enough to note here that this idea of there being a such thing as true or sound doctrine, that is true truth, that is doctrine that is right and doctrine that is wrong, is promiscuous, it's a promiscuous thought, suggestion in our common age. And we're used to talking that way here, but let us not remember where and when we live in a secular age where true truth is not accepted. Truth for you and truth for this group is accepted. We believe there's a such thing as sound doctrine. It's not relative to the member. There are things that are more or less clear in Scripture. There are things that we can be preferential or deferential on. But there is a thing called sound doctrine that apparently is plain enough, that apparently Timothy knows about, the church knows about, and there's a such thing as different doctrine which they should have an ear for. There's a such thing as sound doctrine. And before we can teach and hold this sound doctrine, elders, we have to believe there's a such thing. There's a such thing as truth and error, sound and different doctrine. Well, what is this different doctrine at Ephesus? Verse 4, myths, he calls it, and endless genealogies. What is that? Apparently, it's based on the law, the Old Testament scriptures. So the guys have Bibles in their hands. And they're, they're propagating all kinds of myths and endless genealogies. Presumably, they're like reading passages and then they're going. Verse 7, they desire to be teachers of the law. Then Paul in verse 8 and 4 would clarify what the law is doing. They're using the Old Testament like a, like a grab bag for material. Ooh, what's this? Ooh, what's this? John Stott says they're treating the Old Testament law as happy hunting ground for their conjectures. Ever read a Bible passage and say to yourself, I have no idea what that means. I'm not going to talk in this Bible study. Well, not everyone is like that. There are some people who read that same passage and then start talking like they know what it means. I'm going to be making fun of some of you in here. I don't have any one person in mind. But they're around. What matters, though, they don't realize it, is that you think they know what it means. And they kind of like talking. Behind words that some find confusing or curious, like genealogies, they don't scratch their head. They start talking and theorizing and chasing all kinds of interesting questions. The Bible to them may be a book of interesting ancient facts. I've known people who seem to measure spiritual maturity by how many obscure and smart-sounding questions they can follow up with me after a sermon in bullet point form. Amazing, amazing lists. But friends, this is not your upper-level physics class here this morning. It's the Bible. And its purpose is not to entertain you or make you feel smart or intellectual or theological. Its purpose is to save you and employ you in the service of others and the church and in the labor for the salvation of others. I have no time for those who love to talk about pointless details and never disciple anyone. I do have some time and patience for those who love endless details but are busy discipling. In a good way. And I've got time in a bad way for them, for people who love the endless details and are discipling others in the endless details. And those exist too. And you've got to stop them. And you certainly don't give them leadership roles. And they don't always understand why. And neither do their people that follow them. And they do it in the name of truth-seeking. There are people like this who desire to be elders and we must not appoint them. Even if there's pressure and a pull to do so. I was talking with a friend this past month who's pastoring a church. It's growing now in its grasp of scripture and and sound doctrine. And in the vacuum of a healthy biblical eldering over years, certain men have presented themselves as spiritual authorities. And they talk a lot and they sound like they know what they're talking about. And they're confident, but they don't know what they're talking about. They must not be allowed to assume the office of elder. And it may mean losing friends to stand in the way of a person like this. But for the sake of the sheep, Timothy, you must not let them become teachers. 
their teaching. They must not be allowed to assume official roles. What's the danger? Why so stiff? Why so firm? Two dangers. This doctrine promotes speculations rather than faith. Promotes speculations rather than faith. Verse 4. They devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. These speculations stir doubt and make people unconfident and nervous. That's one sign that you've got some bad teaching. Speculations like the Bible code, here's a description, claimed that an Israeli mathematician has decoded the Bible with a computer formula, unlocking 300-year-old prophecies of events such as the Kennedy assassination, the election of Bill Clinton, everything from the Holocaust to Hiroshima, from the moon landing to the collision of a comet with Jupiter. I was a brand new Christian, and I remember being at the Christian bookstore, and shame on Christian bookstores who sell nonsense just because it sells. And there's a copy of the Bible Code, and I'm about 16 years old, and I'm looking at it like, wow, and it seems credible, and I'm asking about it. I mean, should I be paying attention to this? A youth pastor or pastor, it's some way and somehow had communicated to me that I didn't need to pay any attention to it. And praise God for elders. Praise God for pastors who put down popular books. They must not be allowed to assume the office of elder who are entertained by these kinds of things. And there are, this is kind of an extreme example. Speculations. Like the Bible code or like so many words and books and questions by, by Rob Bell as an example. An example. Rob Bell, uh, a heretic who uh, pastored a church in the Grand Rapids area uh, where my wife lived in Jenison on the way from Jenison to Grandville where her church was, where we would go to church. Uh, there was an old mall and a Mars Hill church up there. Not the same Mars Hill that's in Seattle if you're familiar with that. Mars Hill Church and a young, uh, inspiring, uh, magnetic preacher named Rob Bell was, was doing his stuff there and gathering a crowd. And if you're familiar with Grand Rapids Christianity, lots and lots and lots and lots of churches and lots and lots and lots and lots of nominal Christianity and lots and lots and lots and lots of bad Christianity, bad preaching, unhealthy churches. There's something about the questions that Rob was asking in the early 2000s which resonated with a lot of young Christians and even some of my friends. And some of the questions were fair. I mean, you, you can, lots of inquiry and solutions and theology, theological growth begins with questions. But he rarely answered them, and when he did, it was often subversively, and if you had ears to hear it, you could tell where he was going. The emergent church, it was called, was famous for questions without answers. Speculations, speculations, speculations like... That one year around the campfire with some Christian friends, one guy wouldn't stop talking about two things that stuck in his head. Maybe Jesus is light means he's really light because we don't really know what light is. And he just keep running with that. Next minute, he's undermining the Trinity. You know, how do we know that Jesus is the eternal Son of God? And then the next minute, he is completely confident that Ezekiel and that thing that he saw in the sky was space aliens. Uh, so you've got confidence about things that we're not clear on. You've got unconfidence on things that Christians have historically been clear on. Speculations. Someone who likes to hear themselves talk. Watch out. They'll put you in a trance. None of this encourages faith. It stirs up doubt. There's a second danger that we see here in verse 5 and 6. The different doctrine promotes controversies rather than love. In verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. Love is the aim of his instruction of sound doctrine. You can't separate sound doctrine from love. You want a more loving, warmer church? You need clearer, crisper, more beautiful, truer, sounder, healthier doctrine. It is the way. A love that issues from three things, he says. It's from a pure heart. The kind David prayed for. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. The kind Jeremiah promised. They shall be my people and I'll be their God and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. 
And the kind Jesus spoke of, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Love issues from a pure heart and different doctrine actually yields uh, ungodliness as this book will show us. And there's a good conscience said an inner judge that accuses us when we have done wrong and approves of us when we've done right is a way of describing the conscience. We can sin against the conscience so that we we defile it and upset it and bother it. And if we keep sinning against the conscience, we sear it like scar tissue. And if you don't have a clean conscience, you can't love For you're burdened by guilt and shame and hiding and you're hiding behind your loving works. They're a mask for you and not kindness for those you offer them to. Love issues from a pure heart. Love issues from a good conscience and a sincere faith. Not contrived or forced and not for show and not for anything but Christ sincere. Not to be seen. This is the kind of love that makes for a healthy church. And this kind of love that that issues from a pure heart and from a clear conscience and from a sincere faith, that's what we're trying to establish in the lives of every Christian here. A pure heart and a good conscience, sincere faith. And how are those things possible in human beings born in Adam? They're possible through the gospel, through the sound doctrine, the teaching about God and Christ. Timothy was timid young and sickly. He was not a magnetic personality. But consider that these, those teaching false doctrine, different doctrine, were teachers. They were articulate. They were devoted to their teachings. They were ambitious, desiring to be teachers, recognized. They were biblical sounding. They had the Bible in their hands, and they were also confident. They were making confident assertions. Wow, those are, those are magnetic people, and they're hard to put down. They're hard to resist. And all of it makes them compelling. They walk in a room and they're liked. and People identify with them. They have the big Sunday school class if they're allowed or the popular shepherding group. And they have interesting Facebook posts where you go, yeah, 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 I'm following him. They seem to have answers. But all their answers usually raise more questions. They don't settle your faith even if they're intriguing. Endless speculations They're a black hole of intrigue and they don't settle you. They're like an acid to biblical love because they eat away at three things. Their controversies corrode the purity of heart, their own interests and self-promotion. They fog up the Bible's teaching so that men and women are susceptible to impure motives and thoughts and lives. Their controversies corrode a clear conscience and their controversies corrode sincere faith. These men want you to have faith in them, or these women want you to have faith in them, not in Christ. And so in as much as it may look or feel like faith in Christ, it is insincere. They like the vain discussion and the chatter it creates when they're honest. You get the impression they don't care if you or they or anyone actually figures anything out. They just like to talk, and it makes them feel smart. Curious, and they don't care if the church is unified under its own leadership and teaching. What's important is that there are people following them, and they'll support the leadership in as much as that reinforces their strength of leadership, and in as much as they're advancing. And these people may look buttoned up and together, but they have, he says, swerved from the truth, and Timothy's to see it. These people may be in the halls, even of our church at times, but they have wandered away from the faith. This is Timothy's immediate challenge. Tough. Christ is building his church, but no surprise, some are showing up with different measurements and different materials. And some are showing up with modified plans, with attractive additions, with some extra scenery, an extra bush here, a patio there, integrated technology, But they aren't sound plans. They look good, but they won't stand. And they confuse people and undermine the work of Jesus' true authorized subcontractors, his, his shepherds, his elders. So how do we know what's true? How do we know what's the sound doctrine? Well, we can discern three tests even from what we've said so far. First, is the teaching sound? And you might say, well, that doesn't help. But consider that Paul assumes that some things are straightforward. 
He's received the apostolic blueprints. Apparently, they're discernible and clear and agreed upon in a certain body of content that was recognizable. Get into any hobby and read around or any issue in the news and read around and read, do all the reading. Things get clear and then you listen to someone spouting off that doesn't know what they're talking about and it's just obvious. Well, sound doctrine, the heart of the matter in the Christian faith is just obvious. It's straightforward. You can just tell when someone's making stuff up. That's the test for its content. Two more tests from the consequences. A bit of reverse engineering. Second, the test of faith. Does, it, does the teaching undermine a person's faith and lead to doubts and an unsettled spirit and an endless quest for answers? Well, it might be that they're given to endless speculations. And third, a test of love. Does it promote love and settle the church in itself? Or when a person on this issue is crossed for which there is not biblical substantial material, does it divide and they're testy and there's an electric charge around the topic? It may be that that as well is a matter of endless speculations. It doesn't promote love but division. That's what's at stake. The love and the faith of the church. What then is Timothy to do about it? Charge is what he's to do about it. Charge certain persons not to teach these doctrines. He's to show up and be a theological leader. What's happening in this sermon right now is I'm trying to shape and define for you in your imagination what a shepherd and a pastor and an elder is. They're all the same thing. And what our elders are and what their job is. And to reinforce this for myself, he's a theological leader. His job is to define the theological space for what is a theological people, the church. To make plain what flies and won't fly here and to do that in keeping with the word. He's to show up at times and be a bad guy. And that's what we need sometimes in elders. Bad guys. We need them to say, that teaching is not from scripture. Sometimes patience is needed with the sheep for them to come around. The patience in this instance, this kind of an instance for Timothy, will mean that the faith and love of Jesus' church are compromised. Timothy in this particular instance, and for us in some, would be wrong to say, I need to be patient with these certain persons. Little faux builders around us in our flock. And it's our job to know what are and aren't Jesus' plans and to change the phony builders, charge the phony builders to put down their blueprints and to put them in the trash. Notice that Timothy fosters love in Christian community not by appeasing or getting along with the bad teachers, which would be tempting. He knows that certain that concern is precisely what undermines love and he gets out the scalpel even if it hurts. So I may need to tell you sometimes that author's not good or that book is a problem. We can talk about it. I may need to say, you don't need to be reading that website. We can talk about it. Let me take you to the scriptures. Don't follow that blogger. They're evolving and we've seen it coming. Fully expect this stuff to creep in. Paul did. Fierce wolves. To creep in if the elders are not acting as theological gatekeepers. One elder asked in a recent meeting, how will you protect us in that instance from false teaching? It's a perfect question, the right question. How are we structuring our work to protect us from false teaching? Well, we've gotten acquainted with Paul and Timothy and we've seen a command to get to work. Now, getting it right. Verses 8 through 11, getting it right. The Bible, that is. Troublemakers who abuse a certain part of the Bible can spoil that part of the Bible for God's people. And they do this by how they wrongly use it. About how, also about how they provoke overreactions. We can become confused, for example, as to the goodness of the Old Testament, in particular the Mosaic Law, in particular maybe the moral commandments, and perhaps downplay its importance and role for Christians. We can become confused as to how it functions, not only its goodness, but how it functions. And we can become confused as to what it has to do with the gospel at all, and the point of it all. 
But all of God's words is for, are for all of God's people. And so our job is not to downplay the things that false teachers upplay, but to play them as they were meant to be played. So Paul digresses in verses 8 through 11 to offer some reinforcements in the structure of Timothy's ministry. Just because someone uses the building materials of the Bible wrong doesn't mean you discard them or shy from using them. Let's remember, verse 8, the law is good. For we know that the law is good if, if we use it lawfully. There's presumably a way to use the Old Testament law that is bad. And elders need to be in tune to this. And you need to take our lead in it. Not all preaching is good for you, in other words. Some steak is undercooked. But let's not forget Psalm 119 and Psalm 19 and Psalm 1 that speak with word after word and line after line of the beauty and the delight and the benefits of the word of God, even the very law of God. The law is good. That's one thing that was confused apparently in this environment. We don't know exactly the nature of the teaching, but it involved the mishandling of the Old Testament. Second, the law is useful. This has to do with its function. False teachers may make the Old Testament law sound like something incredibly complex and curious and a, 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 a fountain of endless speculations, at least in that environment. And Paul says simply, we know that the law is good if we use it lawfully. Verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. All of that from which Jesus saves us all, of course. Christians from Luther and Calvin forward have spoken about a couple uses of the law, three uses of the law. You have the law's condemning use. Luther's famous on this. It is a mighty hammer to crush the self-righteousness of human beings. It shows them their sin so that they, so that by the recognition of sin, they may be humbled and frightened and worn down and so may long for grace and for the blessed offering of Christ. And in this way, the law of the Old Testament, the commands against so many thoughts and intents and behaviors that come natural to us in Adam, functions as a schoolmaster to train us for the day when Christ comes to make us to know our need. It's the condemning use, the, the restraining use restrains human sin in a good way. It actually holds us back from doing what we might otherwise do. And third, it's sanctifying use. It instructs us in what is actually right and good. And here he's talking about in this passage what we could call the restraining use. And in doing so, he passes through almost all ten commandments. Third, the law accords with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how? Remember the other two uses of the law. It teaches us about the sin and about our sin and about our need for the gospel. And at the very same time, it teaches us about the sin from which God saves us and the life to which he saves us. He speaks about this law, but then he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, which accords with the gospel. How does the law and everything else which accords with sound doctrine in these prohibitions accord with the gospel? Well, the law is preparatory and the gospel is the power to save. The law holds out righteousness as a standard. You cannot reach it, but the gospel gives righteousness through Jesus Christ who did. False doctrine, a different doctrine, and this is what elders care about, suffocates true obedience. It suffocates our ability to actually obey God's commands. But sound doctrine, gospel doctrine, is oxygen for obedience to these very commands. And for this reason, we can say that the gospel preaching and law preaching are not at odds. They are not even essentially, necessarily, in contrast to one another in every instance. Which is why Paul can say this in chapter 3. I hope to come to you soon. We've heard this already. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave 
in the household of God. What is the household of God? The church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Apparently, there's a particular way to behave in the household of God as one who belongs to God and the church. This book is written to encourage and strengthen that. But watch what he says in verse 16 then. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And where does it all begin? He, Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. I'm writing so you might know how one ought to behave in the household of God, the church, the pillar and the buttress of truth. And then a burst of gospel reflection and meditation and doxology and song of Jesus who is raised, the gospel who is preached to all the nations, and the one who is taken up in glory. How we should behave in the gospel of God's grace in Jesus are beautifully mingled together in a careful way. And so, friends, we are on the job site, aren't we? We're on the job site, and it's war, he says. Christ is building his church in us and around us, and he's doing it through us. And he's doing it on the foundation of the scriptures. And the household he is building is facing the world, proclaimed to all the nations, he'd said. And the point of it all, it's unto the glory of God. Verse 11, it is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this word from your apostle whom you appointed, the command of Jesus to Timothy, for it is inspired for us. And we pray that we would be a church that is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, on sound doctrine. Help all of us to grow in the knowledge of and the conviction in and in the settled faith in the truth of the gospel. And may that truth, that sound doctrine, yield a pure hearts and clean consciences and, and sincere, genuine faith in order that we might be known for our love and that known for our love, the world might know that you sent Jesus and that he is king. It's in his name we pray. Amen.